enjoyed the Christmas music this morning in uh, more regular amounts than we typically do. That's been a good time. And one of the things I love about Christmas, and I'm sure you do as well, is the uh, the familiarity of, of the Christmas music. Um, and yet, at the same time, uh, we don't hear it for so many of the months out of the year. And then Christmas season arrives, and, and we hear it again, and it's familiar to us, but it's sort of like a, an old friend that you, you bump into occasionally, or you don't see very often, but when you see that old friend, um, it's, there's a familiarity there and an enjoyment of the fellowship, uh, and it brings all of that back to you. And that's sort of the way it is with Christmas music uh, every year, I feel like. And uh, I'm a committed disciple to the gospel of no Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I hope you are as well. Um, that's a, it's a, the good news of, of that is, is very true and compelling, and uh, I hope that's where you're at. But um, after Thanksgiving, when you start listening to Christmas music and you turn the radio on, maybe you do that, and certain stations will play a variety of Christmas music, uh, there are always uh, songs that are catchy. Uh, maybe the lyrics are interesting, but the tune is catchy, and they'll kind of get into your brain, and you'll hear them over and over again during the Christmas season. And um, <laughs> one of those songs is, uh, and maybe I'll get in trouble for this, but that's all right. Uh, it's the John Lennon song. Um, the uh, War is over. Have you? I'm sure you've all heard that song. Uh, it's it's very. A lot of different people sing it, um, and uh, you'll hear that regularly throughout the Christmas season. Uh, it's a catchy tune, and I don't know if you've looked into the song and really read the lyrics, but basically the whole song is a desire for world peace, and uh, it's it was written as a protest song against the war. And all of that. Now, listen to what I'm saying. Hear me correctly this morning, okay? There's lots that we can critique about John Lennon and his view of the world and about that song in particular. And so I'm not saying it's like we should sing it in church or anything like that. Um, But what I find interesting about that song is the desire for peace and the desire for world to end, war to end, that is so uh, wrapped up in that song. Um, the lyrics that are fascinating to me is they say over and over again, war is over if you want it. Uh, that desire is there. And I think that's one of the reasons people enjoy that song is that ideal of, of world peace is something that a lot of different people want and long for. Um, and sometimes as, as Christians, you know, a song like that in particular, maybe we can mock that and think, well, you know, world peace is not going to be a reality because of sin. And yet at the same time, that desire for peace and for harmony is something that is wrapped up in our souls, deep in our souls, because we know that things are not as they should be. We know we live in a broken world. And he recognizes that, but I think his path to get there is, is off and is not quite right. We want harmony with one another, and ultimately our greatest need, as we'll talk about in a few minutes is harmony and peace with God. And ultimately, that's what Jesus, Jesus Christ brings. And so we talked about that a little bit last week. If you remember from Isaiah chapter 9, we talked about how Jesus would be the Prince of Peace and he would bring this word, shalom. And we're going to talk about that in more detail this morning. 
But what we did last week was we looked at those promises in Isaiah chapter 9 to Israel, and we thought about how those promises anticipate and look forward to what we know is ultimately the coming of Jesus Christ. And so last week it was Christmas promised, and this week it's Christmas received from Luke chapter 2. So open up to Luke chapter 2, if you're not already there this morning. And we want to direct our thoughts toward this passage. And we, we've already read it with the children. We're not going to go through the whole text in detail this morning. But look again at Luke two, fourteen, with me. Luke chapter 2, 14. I'm sorry? Let's do the lights. Absolutely. That would be great. Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. We ended with this last time. It says, this is what the angels announced. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so we want to think about this this morning, direct our thoughts toward this passage. And the reality is, is that the angels told these shepherds, look, this whole birth, this whole thing is about bringing glory to God. And the way that's going to happen is ultimately this child is going to bring peace or shalom is, is the word used in the Old Testament to the earth. And so we want to we want to think about that this morning. And I instead of giving you a bunch of points this morning, we don't have a long uh allotted time for this, but I want to give you kind of a summary statement and then we'll break two pieces and go through this this morning. So this is what we're talking about from Luke 2 and verse 14 mainly. Jesus fulfills Old Testament expectations, and here's why he does that. In order to bring peace to mankind. Okay, Jesus fulfills Old Testament expectations in order to bring peace to mankind. And let me break this into two parts. First of all, let's talk about this. Jesus fulfills Old Testament expectations. We talked about this a lot last week from Isaiah chapter 9. There are all these promises that are made to Israel in Isaiah chapter 9. We worked through that. We saw those promises. And if you remember, those promises were um, hope to Israel. The promise was of an everlasting king that would come to them. And ultimately, the last promise that we saw was that peace would come to Israel. There would be the absence of war. Remember, they would would actually burn the armor and the war clothes and the implements of war because of the fulfillment of these promises, because of this child who was going to come to the nation of Israel and ultimately to, to all nations. And so you hear all those promises in the Old Testament, and then you open up to your New Testament and you start reading the Gospels. And I hope as you read the Gospels, you, you just immediately see how inundated the Gospel writers are with the Old Testament. I mean, they, it's like they've been swimming in it, and it is all over them and in their thinking and in their brains, and they can't get away from the Old Testament. And so they write out of the overflow of their understanding of what God has promised in the Old Testament. And you get to a a book like the Gospel of Luke or Matthew, or as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, and one of their main messages is, look, all the things that God has planned and promised to the nation of Israel and to the whole world, all of those are coming to fulfillment in the birth of this child and in the work that he's going to do. Now, why is it so important that you and I see that the Old Testament fulfills itself and the promises in the New Testament? Well, certainly we can learn that God is faithful and he always keeps his promises. That's true. And we want to affirm that and believe that and rest in that. 
But the other thing that that tells us is that the scriptures are a unified story. It's one story. And sometimes that's difficult to see. We read and we think, ah, that doesn't really seem to be matching what I read in the Old Testament. But the New Testament writers affirm over and over again, this is one story that's being unfolded. And the climax of that story is this person who was born, Jesus Christ. That's the pinnacle. That's the fulfillment. That's the the centerpiece of this entire story and ultimately of world history. This is the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And so the gospel writers see that. And so it's important for us to see that it all fits together into a unified story. And so I want to show you really briefly in these early chapters of the gospel of Luke, how the birth of Jesus Christ fulfills these Old Testament expectations, all right? So Luke chapter 1, you can flip back one page there. In Luke chapter 1, Luke opens his gospel by telling us about two families who are going to have children, all right? So it's John the Baptist's parents, two sets of parents, and then Jesus' parents, okay? Now it's interesting when you see both of these families, they both have angelic visitors who come to them and tell them they're going to have children. And both families, both couples, aren't able to have children. John the Baptist's parents are past childbearing years, and Jesus's parents aren't ready to have children yet. In fact, they're a little bit before childbearing, right? So we've got two ends of the spectrum there, and these angels come to them and say, look, These miraculous events are going to happen, and it's in fulfillment of the Old Testament. God is breaking into the world and doing something special, and he's going to do it through both of your families. And so as you you start to read Luke chapter 1 in particular, and you see some of what the angel tells these parents, and then how the parents respond to this news, it's amazing how filled this is with the Old Testament. Look at the angel's words to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. I mean, that's exactly what we saw in Isaiah chapter 9 last week. And the angel saying, Look, those promises, <laughs> you're... This is what's going to happen in your son. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's the same language as we saw in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, look at how Mary responds to that. There's this famous song of praise that she gives in verses 46 to 55. And I just want to read the last two verses. You can go back and read the whole thing on your own. But look at verse 54, what she says. He, God, has helped his servant Israel. So she sees the birth of her son as God fulfilling his promises of redemption to the nation of Israel. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And so Mary, here's what the angel says. She knows her Old Testament and all these promises. And she says, look, God is, God is fulfilling those promises through the birth of this child. And in fact, this goes all the way back to Abraham. The long time coming. Significant event. Then John the Baptist's parents, Zachariah, you remember that story, their past childbearing years. 
And he doesn't believe the angel at first, and so he can't talk until after John the Baptist is born. And then when John is born, he has this song of praise to God. And I want to read this whole song to you. And again, look at how tied to the Old Testament this song of praise is. Chapter 1 of Luke, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for, look at this, he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you child will be called the prophet So John the Baptist of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And then notice the language in particular in verse 79. Remember Isaiah chapter 9? In fact, I think I have the passage up here. Yeah, Isaiah 9, 2. Remember this text? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. And look at what he says here, verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And even he understands that the ultimate goal of all of this is shalom and is peace. And so it's all filled with Old Testament expectations. So you get into Luke chapter 2, and you see the birth of Jesus. And we've already talked through this a little bit with, with the kids this morning. But look down in verse 10 specifically at what the angel tells the people. And I want to show you passages from Isaiah 9 and show you how this compares and how they match up. All right. So Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be to all people. So joy. Look what he says in verse 3 of Isaiah 9. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. And then in verse 7. In Luke 2 it says to all people. In verse 7 of Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government. And of peace there will be no end. So his government. His rule will extend to be all the nations. And so this promise of the angels in Luke 2 is. Look this is joy not just for Israel. This is joy for all people. And all nations. Including you and I. All people everywhere. All right. Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. And we, we talked earlier with the kids about how Jesus was of the house and lineage of David. Chapter 9 and verse 6 in Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Actually, I was meant to read verse 7. The throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and hold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So he's going to sit on the throne of David. All right. And then chapter uh, chapter nine, verses six and seven talks about the peace that he will bring to the nations. Prince of peace. And then verse seven talks about the peace that he will bring to the nations. And we've read it a couple times, but look at it again. Chapter two and verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So all of this 
The fulfillment of Old Testament expectations is intended to bring peace or shalom to Israel. And it all resounds to the glory of God. As God's well-orchestrated plans are fulfilled, as he promised he's going to do, it brings glory to his name as these promises are fulfilled. And so that brings us to the second half of this. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. He fulfills Old Testament expectations in order to bring peace to mankind. Now, this is the question that we want to ponder for just a couple minutes this morning. What does it mean that he's going to bring peace? And we mentioned that word last week, shalom, and we don't use that word very often, but what does that word mean? Shalom is what God originally intended for his creation. If you go all the way back into Genesis, he he created Adam and Eve and the entire creation without blemish, without sin. We were designed for harmony. That's That's a good word for shalom, with harmony, for harmony with God, with one another. And we were designed for harmony with the world around us. Now, as I was thinking about how to explain this to you, uh, I could try to wax poetic to try to give you a sense of what means, but I'm not very poetic. And so I'm going to read you an extended quote from an author, and I think this is beautiful. And it's a beautiful description of what it means to have shalom and what God is planning, what he intends for all of us. This guy, uh, Cornelius Pontinga, wrote this whole article on sin, and he says the, the ultimate goal of creation and the, the, the vision that the Hebrew prophets had for us was of this word, shalom. All right, so here's what he says. They, being the Hebrew prophets, so like we saw last week in Isaiah 9, they dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would... St- Let me read that again because my mic went out age in which human crookedness would straighten out the fool be made wise and the wise made humble they dreamed of a time when the deserts would bloom the mountains would run with wine people would stop weeping and be able to sleep without a weapon do i need to hold one of those mics this is tremendous obviously we're in need of some shalom this morning <laughs> just leave it in the stand here that's all right i'll hold it i don't mind is it on not yet This is really good. All right. I will wait to read this until I get this mic working. There we go. All right. Let me start over. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would straighten out. The foolish would be made wise and the wise made humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would bloom, the mountains would run with wine, people would stop weeping and be able to sleep without a weapon under their pillow. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. A lamb could lie down with a wolf because the wolf had lost its appetite. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from women in streets and from men at sea. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight 
is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. In English, we call it peace, but it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the Creator and Savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom He delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. And you and I know, deep in our hearts, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Look around you this Christmas. You know that's true. If the world is supposed to be filled with flowers and trees and animals like a garden, to us, it many times looks like a graveyard, doesn't it? And we look around and it's broken and it's messed up. It's, if it's supposed to be a straight line, it's crooked to us. Why? Why is our world like that? Well, it's like that because of sin. Because sin broke into God's good creation as a parasite and as a spoiling agent, as a corrupting influence in God's good world. And sin weakens and destroys that which is good. And you can see that in your own life and you can see that in the lives of those you love and those you know. And sin broke Adam and Eve's harmony with God, with one another and with creation. And you can see that in the curses in Genesis 3. Sin disrupts the peace that God had planned for his creation. And it disrupts the peace like a grenade tossed into a family dinner. That's what sin does to God's good world. And so when you think about it in that term, those terms, what are these angels promising is going to happen through the birth of this child? They're saying glory is going to resound to God because he's going to fix what has been broken. He's going to straighten out that which is crooked. He's going to return things to the way they're supposed to be, not the way they are now. If it's a crooked line, it's going to be made straight. If it's a graveyard, it's going to flourish as a garden. Now, how is Jesus going to do this? Really quickly, let me give you three ways. First of all, and most significantly, he's going to bring peace with God for us. If sin is a corrupting agent and it broke our fellowship with God and our ability to know God and rejoice in God and enjoy God, then Jesus Christ, through his birth, his death, and his resurrection, is going to make those that relationship right. He is going to bring reconciliation between man and God. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Reconciliation happens, and this is the primary thing that Jesus brings, and this allows the other two ways that he brings peace to come about. This is where the whole thing starts. Conflict between God and man ends because Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. And we receive grace and peace through him as we trust him and his work. Secondly, peace with one another. I mean, if you've lived on this earth this week, 
I'm sure you've experienced conflict with another human being in some form or fashion. Adam and Eve begin to immediately have conflict with one another. They're blaming one another. And as soon as they get out of the garden and they have children, one of their sons kills the other one of their sons. Conflict is the result of sin because it's parasitic and it destroys relationships with one another. But through the birth of Jesus Christ and through the peace and the shalom that he brings between human beings and God, the result of that is that we will have peace with one another. We will be able to exist in harmonious relationships with one another for all of eternity. And you know what? The church is a preview. It's supposed to be a preview of that right now. When we have conflict with one another, we're supposed to reconcile and work through that and live out the peace that, we're, that we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, this is what Jesus brings. And then lastly, restoration of the whole creation. Everything is going to be set right. I mean, you remember the curses in Genesis chapter 3. Work would be unfruitful. Work would be harder. It would be difficult, and it wouldn't accomplish everything you were hoping to. It would be difficult to get food under sin because sin destroys and corrupts. But Jesus comes to bring peace with God, peace with one another, and ultimately he comes to restore the entire creation, to make everything right, to make the earth, the new earth, a place where you and I can work and live and enjoy relationships with one another and enjoy the creation that God has given us free from sin. I mean, look at this promise in Isaiah chapter 11 of what it'll be like. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be fill, full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's, that's what brings this about, is we know God rightly, and we live in relationship with him wholly and harmoniously through Jesus Christ. And he's the only one that makes that possible. That's what our future looks like in Isaiah chapter 11, if we know Jesus Christ. And so this, this picture, this is what receiving Christmas looks like. It's recognizing these promises and understanding that these things are in our future. And these realities, the peace, the shalom that Jesus will bring, this is what we have to anticipate and what we have to look forward to. And so receiving Christmas appropriately means recognizing these things, anticipating them, and then rejoicing and enjoying the reality that Jesus brought. Jesus Christ brings peace. So Christmas is a celebration of these promises, the arrival of these promises. And at the same time, we recognize that we don't fully have these things yet. And so we look forward to them in the future. We anticipate them. And we long for the day when Isaiah 11, when Isaiah 9 will be reality. When we will be ruled over by the Prince of Peace in a benevolent dictatorship And he will bring about harmony and shalom, peace and joy for us and for all of creation. That's something we can celebrate. And I'd encourage you today to ponder those things, rejoice in them and celebrate them with your family, with your friends.
Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for these truths. Fill our hearts with joy over the future. Fill our hearts with joy over what you've already accomplished in our lives. We're already citizens of your kingdom, and we can begin living out these promises now. We can have harmony with you. We can have peace with one another. We can have joy in our work, in the creation that you have given us even now, in its brokenness. Help us to live those things out this week and to rejoice in the promises of Christmas. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.